Good day, good morning, good afternoon. It, it's John Summers, the motoring historian, here again with school friend Mark Gammy. How are you, Mark? I'm living the dream, baby. Ah, like, I'm pleased to hear it. Um, yeah, so um, just thought we would talk about US road trips today, thought we would talk about the conference that I did at, at um, Midway 2 last week. And uh, and anything else that that took our fancy for the next sort of forty minutes or so, forty five or an hour. It's been an hour. Actually, they've all been different lengths because, of course, I can't edit for um for anything worth a damn. And so, we do talk a lot of shit. We do talk a lot of shit, and in fact, the last one I I, I edited episode three just just yesterday because I'm going to break down the third one. This is one of the things about the Real Housewives, right? If you're on the Real Housewives and you're splitting up with your husband. You can't be like, we're splitting up because he's but her because I'm more famous and make more money than him. Because you're like referring to the show. You can't like refer to the show. Do you see what I mean? You can't break the third wall. And what they've done in some reality TV shows is, is you'll hear the producer talking as a way to make it seem more real. You'll hear the producer like asking questions because we all know that the third wall's there. So why not? Well, I'm not going to pretend like, you know, it's just us chickens talking. This is not just us chickens talking. The fact that it's being recorded changes what we're doing, right? No, I'm totally natural. Well, well, okay, right? Okay. But that is, in fact, whilst let's break down the third wall completely. That is what I'm trying to achieve. It's it's the Mike Brewer, Alain de Cadenet. When you meet the real person, they are similar to the persona that they portray on the TV. Because it's really hard to do that if you. That's just why I'm doing the voice because I can be the real me in conversation with you over on with voice. But I can't be the real with me if if I'm I'm sitting here looking at myself talking to you here. I couldn't be as scruffy as I am or well, maybe I could I don't know I mean this is the the YouTube way I mean in YouTube nowadays we got all these shots up people's noses and all the shaky camera and all of this kind of Blair Witch bollocks isn't it so I don't know maybe I could do that but I don't I don't feel comfortable with that because when you make it a visual medium you make it mostly about the visual and I don't want it to be mostly about the visual I don't know I mean I was watching that Aiden Millwood Formula One site before we uh, we came online here and and uh, he's interesting because he sets out to tell a great story that he researches really well but the photographs are shitty and he himself is is not the most visually appealing bloke and yet he's happy to put you know he himself said I always think his office environment looks a bit like yours Danny um, you know he, he's happy to have that kind of 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 playing, you know, I'm just at my house and I've done all this research about Formula One because I'm interested in it and I'm sharing it with you and I'm using Wikipedia images to, you know, break up the monotony a little bit. But the main thing is what I'm saying rather than the visual image, which takes us back to Just Go Drive, doesn't it? Which I'm going to plug a little bit because I actually watched those videos that we did a couple of years ago. And I think they're interesting because... Um, I actually don't think they're too bad. I just think when you watch a YouTube video, you're expecting like a Top Gear style review of a car. You're not expecting B-roll with insightful commentary. If there's B-roll, you're expecting the commentary to be anodyne. And if there's exciting film, the commentary still 
may be worthwhile or may not be, you can still be hit and miss with with. Anyway, so I I but I watch that stuff again, and I'm actually quite happy with it. I don't I don't. We still need mind to it. like launch the um the 45 minute NASCAR um early history of NASCAR video that we did as well because we put quite a lot of effort into that. I'm just still kicking around on my hard drive. We need to get that out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I had considered, of course, I, I was thinking this is a misnomer. Is somebody listening to this thinking, I was expecting Moaching History. Where <laughs> is the history of the Suzuki JSXR? I want to know what happened in the 1969 Spanish Grand Prix from Barcelona in gory detail. I don't know. I mean, maybe there is an, there is an audience for that out there, isn't it? But I, I didn't want to do I feel like that's better done in the written form. That's what John Summers.net's for, whereas... This form is for you know us chickens. Just uh, well, if they look it up, it. I think we get to that in episode two hundred and sixty-three. So they just need to hang yeah. around for a bit. Well, fun. or go to or did you go to johnsummers.net and, no, and do, do that ancient ancient video? But you see Unless that whole video. Patient. The reason that took you ages to do was because you were trying to layer in the right image. And when I was saying Junior Johnson, you needed to be shown Junior Johnson, not David Pearson. And and getting all that stuff right, and it's a total pain in the ass. And this, yeah, this but it's like ninety nine percent done now, so we should definitely get it out. But you know what? It's a lot less of a pain in the ass than those monks in the medieval period writing Latin with quills and ink, and or and do it in their eyes because they were trying to work with candles late at night. So if you're gonna, at least it's, at least we can preserve what we have in a in a sensible kind of of, of a way. Yeah. So let me begin um, this um, this conference by um, having you Google up Watkins Glen original track, right? If you Google up an original track map of Watkins Glen, um, and if you're listening in the car or something, you know, I know you can't Google it up and we always talk about these visual images. The point is that Watkins Glen was set up to feel like a European circuit. So the main start finish is the main high street through the town. And then you turn off the high street and rather like the Targa Florio, you climb up this crazy hill, a long straight, loads of sweeping around, far more like the Nürburgring or Spa than like the Targa Florio. Um, You can drive the roads now. um, And that final corner, Big Bend, which is this long downhill right-hander, my word, if that's not one of the best corners in motorsport, and I include, you know, I include corners at Spa in, in that, that Big Bend, crappy name, great corner. Um, yeah. It's a very so, American name, to be fair. Well, well it, it, it is. It Accurate, is. Um, too. So, you know. so uh, the other thing is, is if you look, um, if you look at, you look at the start finish and they turn right and they go up the hill. Um, that long right hander there, the motel that I stay in is there. And it's one of these motels where they don't take, you have to like call up by phone. They're not on hotels.com or anything like that, you know, and they, they have like one of those old credit card machines that, you know, you, you put it down and you, they, they like run the thing backwards and forth. But the driver stayed there. That's why I stay in that, um, in that motel because that's where, where the driver stayed. And there's loads of driver memorabilia in in the bar and the bar's quite an impressive bar and if i tell you that when i rocked up to to check in on this last visit there was a gun auction going on there were like more pickup trucks 
then you could shake a stick out parked up outside. And as Good I came boy. in, as I came in, they were hammering a Remington for five hundred and fifty bucks. You know that was the the uh, uh, yeah. The, the auctioneer was a girl in her mid twenties, and she was an absolute rock star. Right, it was worth. It was worth watching. It was worth watching the gun auction because this girl was was uh, was an absolute belter, and of course, I didn't get a name and can't remember the auction company. But that was a a pretty cool upstate New York public swings. But yeah, if you look further around the course, as the course crosses the railway line, which in period was like you know a total like, and this is they they used it in the early fifties, so the cars are like Allards and very early Ferraris. So old uh, Miles Collier's father was killed on that fast um i i think it's a right hander maybe it's a yeah maybe it's a lefter maybe it's a right hander but there's a fast sweeper up at the top of the course there but um it basically part of its a roads a lot of it is b roads a lot of that top part of the course feels like a, a like an english b road so like a british sports car would be really good really good along it but yeah as i say that big bend is a long sweeping downhill um, yeah, so it's the kind of course that you can see a Nivellari do it well, where you were, uh, you know, so if you had big balls, it's a good course. Um, so they built, of course, the road course, which the NASCAR guys and IndyCar and Formula One used for a bit. They built that to try and replicate it, but that's about 10 miles out of town. Um, and in the town, there's affiliated to the library, there's uh, an organization called the International motor racing research center and it's an archive of car stuff so every car book that i've got on my shelf they have as well it's like and plus like a ton more you know when the their version the american version of murray walker chris economaki um when when he popped on to uh, pastors new a few years ago his wife donated his archive to the IMRRC. Um, yeah, so a library where if you call them, they'll do work and research. A bit like the National Motor Museum, they'll do work and research for you. Um, cool. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, unfortunately, a little bit of a backwater. And because they're not commercially viable, you know, they rely on donations. That makes me always feel awkward about what a potential future might might look like. I mean, I'm I've, I'm not a businessman and I didn't enjoy the world of business, but I just I'm just uncomfortable with anything that doesn't have a sort of sustaining income that's relying on a on a sort of handout and doesn't, um, you know, yeah. So I I I I felt also I guess I feel also that there are a few centres like this that have a lot of knowledge. And they should be like nodes on a greater network. So when you are researching information about Indianapolis, it should dig into the Revs archive. It should dig into, you know, George Simeone's archive in Philadelphia. It should dig into um, the National Motor Museum. It should be in all these places at once rather than these information being sort of siloed away. So, you know... You, you need to like it's like old-fashioned history you need to go to these places and like look through the books and talk to the historians to which is fun for like a beardy old historian like me but i just i i just don't feel it's like the future of of you know if we're to preserve motorsport if 
you know, people in 120 years time are to understand what was so cool about the Porsche 956, then we need to do better than grey haired blokes and books on shelves is is my uh um it's as you said yeah i was i was i told you i was edited number three you said in number three um you know like i i don't want to walk around a museum where their cars are sitting there and they haven't even bothered to put up a tv screen where you can see the car driving the one year every millennium they fire it up and, and you're it. gonna hear the, and hear it that was the main point you were making the sound yeah yeah, so, uh, and, and this is not dissimilar from um, old Michael Shanks, uh, uh, Sanford there, and this this notion that, that he had after going around this art gallery in The Hague, where um, they had these still lives. I probably told you this before. They had these still lives. So the still life would be like a bottle of wine and a brass bowl with some fruit in it. And then they would have the brass bowl on a plinth at the side. So you've sort of got the art and then you've got like a 3D representation of it, which is it, which is saying, which suddenly, right, the both things are more. There's a symbiosis there. The art is, you know, so, yeah, so you can, you know, if you've got film of the car running, in theory, you can preserve the car in perpetuity and not wear it out by running it, driving it all the time. You but you can still have the pleasure of making it come alive. And as virtual reality gets better and better, I feel we're duty bound to do that. I mean, already a driving game of racing a blower Bentley at Le Mans is more realistic than you and me buying a Bentley and going there and driving down the Mozart, driving down the, the main road from Paris to but tour at 130 miles an hour. I mean, it's, it's so, so there's, there's room for both, right? But uh, it is, having the real Bentley and being able to drive it around and then having like a VR representation of it, which is grounded in, it's not Mario Kart, it's grounded in the reality that Benjafield gave us when he wrote his impressions of what it was like to race down the Mulsanne Strait. You know, we can, the computer can make the road narrower again. The computer can make the road rough again can't it you know which oh which dude means... like i mean you know that, that somewhat exists if you like <clears throat> if you set up a vr connection to something like gp legends or something you, you know you can do pretty good sim racing stuff based on you know the 1957 you know gp season so you do all the old tricks so there's a lot of stuff coming along and with the um you know my boss i was just at a conference the last couple of days and my boss's lad um i was gonna say lad i think he's like 23 or something but you know he races sim racing he plays i racing and he and uh, uh my boss had uh, endless issues with a three letter acronym company <laughs> um delivery firm with a brown shield um having issues delivering finding the hotel in central london that's very near to heathrow um but anyway we got this we got the box delivered and it was some 350 or 400 bucks set of pedals by fanatec um that are the pedals and there's full sort of varying resistance in the pedals and you can get full geared ratios sort of resistance stuff on the steering wheels now that actually feels like you can sell you can have a really sexy setup at home that used to be um sort of the preserve of the mclaren center you know when they started doing vr you can very much get more advanced probably than they had maybe not in terms of full you know axis and the G's on the, on the chairs and so forth. But, you know, you can approach that in a way that you never used to be able to these days. But the secondary point I'll make is, back to your point about the museums, it's so myopic. These places are often short of cash. 
they're often having trouble making ends meet and sustaining what should be, as you say, an archive in the physical. Um, but ha look at how successful Goodwood is. Look at how successful a lot of these retro classics are. Why don't these places rent out a track for a day? Tracks need, like often, especially in the winter, need money as well because they're not being utilized in the same way. Why don't these people race, rent these places out, take the cars there and once and sell tickets? People would come. Yeah, you're going to sell a shitload of tickets over a long weekend, make a load of money. It's probably going to see the museum through for the rest of the year. And they get turned over once a year. It's only a few, you know, they're probably going to do 30 or 50 miles. But the more you do, the more you put into it, the more they actually give it a few beans and, like you know, get the back end out, the more people will come. So it's, I think there's there's more that can be done in that area as well. This is exactly what my presentation at the conference was about. It was about Absolutely. how the the hobby is is changing, right? It was it was kind of about YouTube, but I touched on the fact that there is this contradiction between museums closing and contradict and collections being liquidized, and Pebble being bigger than ever. Um, you know, car show cars and coffee events being out of control. The value of collectible cars of all a you know of all shapes and sizes but particularly you know 90s stuff there is you, you know they, they yeah so um yeah but my, what my um you know so with there is definitely scope to have people um You know, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody ever goes to the museum in your hometown. Do you? you never visit the museums in your home. When did you last go to the British Museum? When did you last go to the Natural History Museum? Like you, decades and decades ago, you, you don't go to the things that, that are, are close to you. And and um, so maybe the notion that Goodwood is this like one off thing that you have to go to, where you have to buy the tickets and all of that, you know, it becomes like a Prada handbag. But the fact that it's thirty thousand dollars not $3,000 or $300, that alone makes it, you know, covetable. It's rareness makes it, you know, the, the, and there is a, isn't there an economic phenomenon where as the price goes up, it becomes more desirable, not less desirable because it has this, because that confers exclusivity or it, it conveys the you know greatest status for the owner. Right. Cause you know, everyone knows how much money you spend on it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, so what we say, and there's definitely room for a shake-up in the way that we think about marketing classic cars um, or marketing automobility altogether. Um, the conference, one of the things that came up repeatedly was this notion that um, we, we need to take a model from the horsey people and, and that once upon a time horses were, you know, 100 years ago horses were, you know, being used as trucks um you know basically and and now they're exclusively as sports cars you know it's dressage it's it's and what's a dressage if not a demonstration of an everyday skill if you had to ride a horse every day you basically if you were going to ride the horse properly and not have the horse be a pain in the arse and all, you needed to be about as good not as good as like top dressage now but you, you you know what i mean just as driving on a track driving a morris minor round a track in a hundred years time is going to be similar to you know racing you, you see what i mean there's it, it, this notion of pulling together the the, the skills i don't really know where exactly where i'm 
I'm going with that. But but yeah, I, I hear what you're um, saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially as it becomes rarer. Um, my, yeah, again, I was chatting to a chap at the conference, and he said that uh, he's he lives in the states, and his neighbours car had been broken into and they'd broken into it got in and sat in and then just got out and walked off because it was stick shit yeah yeah it is a fairly uh, uh well-known thing that the best way to stop your car getting stolen in california is drive something with manual transmission um yeah and of course this is why so many hypercars went to automatics because you know the reality is managing a v12 stick shift in everyday traffic is you know it's a thing you need to be good you need to be committed and there is always that chance that you know i i, I don't know i mean there are hills um i remember i you know I, if i use the mustang for the school run i will drive a particular route to avoid having to do a stoppy starty through a four-way intersection uphill where there's a hundred yards of cars because the, the 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 clutch pedal needs to be on the floor all the time and and you know i don't know if there's something wrong with the clutch or the clutch is just heavy on that on that mustang but you know my my legs are worn out i'm like an old man i get back pain if i do I, you know so yeah yeah okay so what it so i presented a lot on youtube right it was about what i talked about was how it was most well, racing. So this is which, so which conference? So this is the conference at the place in the Watkins Glen. And who else is there? It, it's uh, so it, it's at this IMRRC, like yeah. International Motor Racing Research Centre, and the small conference. You know, there's maybe fifty people in attendance, if that. Um, but this bridge that I've always tried to stand on between the academics and the car racing people because remember the car racing people often have a lot of money they're often really enthusiastic about cars that but they're they're what the academics call folk historians that they they're not trained historians they they like telling anecdotes um you know bench racing in 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 our parlance but they're not historians in, in the sense of, you know, when you talk to academic historians about cars, what they say is that cars don't have any agency. In other words, we can talk about Henry Ford, we can talk about Alfred Sloan, we can talk about Ferruccio Lamborghini, but we can't talk about Lamborghini as, as a, like a Lamborghini car. This is just not in the same realm as, as and, and a lot of this, right, is the composition of people who are historians which is you know it's it's a liberal leaning female leaning profession and that's very obvious when you go to the to to the conferences so um you know i this event's different from that right the academics who come are car enthusiasts and the non-academics who come are folk historians who are really clever people who work like historians so for example don caps who you will see you know knocking around who's a leading light at, at the conference um former army ranger um multiple you know helicopter shot out of the sky in nam numerous times um has focused his energies in more recent years 
on being not just a historian, but on encouraging people like me to write and talk about motor racing history. Did a big thing about the origin of the Silver Arrows. Um, he sponsored a paper this time from this guy in New Zealand who thinks he can unpick a number of very mysterious histories of Italian 50s racing cars. And this this is a rat hole that's that's worth disappearing down, right? Because this is what the the, the, the conference is, is is really about. Um uh it seems that Italians registered all of their cars and identified their cars like motorcycles by the engine. Whereas in Europe, we always did it by the body. This would seem to be a trivial detail, wouldn't it? Right. So in other words, when Luigi and Mario were building the car, they put engine one in chassis one. Now, if somebody then goes out and bends up chassis one, which never happened, would it? No. You take engine one out and you put it in chassis two. And that car becomes car number one. That's now chassis that's now car one vin number one when that car gets shipped abroad when it gets put into racing manifests it's car number one in like yet in actuality right it's car number two according to how we europeans feel about it so fast forward 50 years when maserati 250 f's are collectible well, it really matters whether this was the car that Sterling Moss raced and won, that Fangio was photographed in, in that famous picture with the damaged nose and the car in a full-blooded four-wheel drift, right? If you can identify that car or even just that engine, that engine and gearbox, you know, it, the identifying that specific car is a much more important thing. Well, and, and the trail is completely, completely blurred. Well, um, I saw the paper presented before, a couple of years ago, before the pandemic. And there was a car broker, a classic car broker, racing car broker, well-known guy in the audience. And I happened to be stood by him, um, stood with him for lunch, you know, in line for lunch immediately after the presentation. So I said to him, what did you make of that Maserati thing? He said he thought it was a load of old bollocks. And, of course, because he has sold many of those cars and he sold the car saying this chassis was the chassis that Sterling Moss used to win in Monaco in 1954. You know what I mean? Uh, that, you know, this, this was the car that did the deed. Yet now the paperwork seems completely blurred and crossed out right because the way that it was annotated from the factory and the way that it was so so if you think of it so car number two leaves the factory as car number two but when it comes back to the factory and gets engine number five then it becomes car number five but according to our reckoning it's not car number five it's actually still car number two right it's got the dinks and the louvers and the brakes and everything of car. So you see how it, it should be a fairly simple thing, but actually 
it, it becomes hideously complicated. So that's the stuff that Don Caps is is ready to to do is pick at those wounds and he'll say you know i can't get doug nye i can't get my friend doug nye to say this and i'm like i said to him in the conference dom like that's because doug is retained by the auction companies and the auction companies have a business which is predicated on the widget being a widget not a widget that had a wadget changed into it and and so this so this bloke that you've wheeled in, this Trevor Lister guy from New Zealand, who looks like he played far too much rugby and has put together these crazy spreadsheets where he thinks it's not just Maserati 250Fs, he thinks it's Seattas, it's Oscars, of course it's Ferraris, but there's an additional like level of double layer of complexity with Ferrari, one being that they they cheated with the numbers, basically. It looks like they deliberately bent the rules. Who would imagine Ferrari would deliberately bend the rules? Plus, you've got the obfuscation of the fact that the cars have been worth a lot of money for ages. So you have the whole, like, Lord Brockett thing. Do you remember Lord Brockett? This was in the 80s, English Lord. Um, when Ferrari prices went up, he started doing things like cutting up some cars to make better ones and faking up the identity of the better one. And then was caught. But by that time, like half a dozen cars, like nice-ish cars, cars that would be worth millions now, had been cut up to make fakey-do GTOs, basically. That was the, was, it was, it was, oh, it's, it's absolutely fingernails down the, down the blackboard when you think about it. But, the, but, but, so when you, when you look back at that, right, that's how the cars were treated in period. So the Ferraris, particularly, uh, and they're, they're, of course, worth telephone dial amounts of money now. So, so to, so for somebody like the car broker who I'll, I won't name, um, but really well known, you've seen him advertise, handles the very, very best cars, one of the top two or three car brokers um you know if we were to go back with before his naming car brokers he would be one of the first three or four names that, that, that we would uh, we would come up with um yeah he's to to dig into that would just be destroy um you know any sense of value or provenance and and it's a bit like digging into allegations of cheating in nascar it's like who gains from it so when Smokey Eunuch said that Fireball Roberts won the 1962, you know, Daytona 500 with a supercharger, when he wrote that, yeah, you know, nobody found any evidence of it. The car's long since destroyed. All, all he did was kind of pee on Fireball's achievement somewhat, didn't he? He didn't really. Like, we can't prove it. And I'm not saying he shouldn't have written it if he thought it was true. I'm just saying in terms of, of the clarity it, of history. It never leaves them. It never leaves them. Nigel was the same at Goodwood in his little speech. They're still snarky and annoyed and grudge-holding, I think. A lot yeah. Of yeah. Yeah, I just wonder... What gives them the vim and vigour, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, well, Smokey Eunuch was certainly a vim and vigour kind of person. And, of course, there's... If you looked on, I've dug into it. it. There's stories about well, where could the supercharger have been, and how could NASCAR have missed it, and could Smokey have had it on there and removed it? And and I I just think it was an old man, you know, talking some shit at the end of his life. Smokey was like that, and I don't think there was ever a supercharger on the car. And I feel like there's like an asterisk next to Fireball's achievement where he was super dominant, like dominant in a way that you never see in NASCAR now. And I feel it was partly Smokey's car, and I feel that Smokey's car probably was a bit cheaty, 
But I feel like Fireball was really fucking amazing that weekend. It was his day of days, if you like. And Smokey, you know, denigrated that for, for you know, just... But, that, but you know, that's just because I can't imagine how a supercharger would fit. But the point is, digging into allegations of NASCAR cheating just makes everybody look bad. You know, when David Pearson won all those super speedway victories with the Wood Brothers, you know, was that cheating? You know, if you, I, I listened to a Pearson interview recently um, where he was saying, oh, you know, because old Petty, he'd often have the big motor. And I'm thinking, yeah, but what did the Wood Brothers do to your car? You know, no, I, I, you know, nobody was within the rules. So, you know, but but to dig into that takes away from the, the greatness of, uh, of the individual, of the individual driver. The point I was making in my presentation was looking at YouTube and saying YouTube has changed the way that we talk about cars. Um, if you want to see, if you want to know who, where, how good Fangio was, you have to read, you know, after you have to like read history and do standard history. You have to like read books and compare and contrast and secondary sources and what did contemporaries think and you know, yeah, it's it's this pure hardcore history. Whereas if you want to know how good Senna was, you just watch the races. They're all on YouTube. You can see, you can see for yourself whether or not he's better. Well, that's awesome as a as a history thing. And now you've got people on YouTube doing that. That Aiden Millwood guy I was talking about earlier. You've got NASCAR guys doing that you you've got people taking things like um alan grice i'm not sure if you've heard of him he was a total maverick racing in south africa racing in australia he was like a bathurst guy well in the mid 80s holden the holden factory team were like we're going to race in europe grice the privateer he was like i'm coming too i'm going to take my holden as well so you've got Peter Brock with the dealer with the Holden dealer team, like racing against six three fives and Capris and things like that. And then you've got this white Holden, Gricey's Holden, not sponsored by anybody. Chickadee was the name. That's some haulage company from the town that he was on. Chickadee was 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 the sponsor. Gricey was faster than the DTV, the dealer team. And even won some races in the course of the season, right? Amazing story. This super 100 mile an hour guy tells that story, right? Which I never would have got. I'm not going to sit there and watch every, you know, every round of the European Touring Car Championship from 1986. But when super 100 miles an hour packages it up for me, there's a new narrative and a new way of telling the story. So I talked about that. I talked about old Hoovy and the supercar guys and how, remember I told that story about the, you know, three dozen McLarens that nearly ran me over when uh, when I was at Pebble. Like, and I couldn't believe how many Lamborghinis and McLarens and new supercars that there, there, there were at Pebble. Yeah, I, I, that's... Hoovy is part of this and these other YouTube guys who... Hoovy has three Lamborghinis paid for by the channel, paid for by this stupid persona that he's got where he talks about cars and doesn't really do anything with them. He just fixes them. And then sells them. He doesn't really like, he doesn't, it's not like he goes to the track. It's not like he's like setting quarter mile times. It's not like he's, you know what I mean? He doesn't, um, yeah. So, uh, yet what he, yet the little he does is enough for him to generate an income from that. So I thought that was worth, that was worth talking about. But to be honest, 
I've had enough of the whole like motor racing as a mediated experience. I want to go back and do proper like hardcore history. So I think what I'm going to do next, um, there was, uh, I'm a member of the Society of Automotive Historians and uh, a woman locally contacted the society saying like, my dad was into motor racing. He's got all these magazines from the 1950s. Would you be interested in them? So the society contacted me as the local member. I met her. And there are all these oval track racing stuff from the 40s and the 50s. It seems that within my within like 10 miles of my home, there were half a dozen racetracks. And in that brief window after the war, but before everyone had a TV, watching oval racing was an enormous thing in, in the US. So I'm going to do a bit of research into that. I'm going to try and do it. Um, this is... Um, making this up as I go. I've never said this out loud before. I just was going around inside my head. When I was a tour guide in Rome, I used to be able to stand in the forum and tell the whole story of Rome from one spot in the forum, literally from, you know, over there in 750 BC, right the way round to, and there in 430 AD, you know, you could just turn around and, and, and it was, it wasn't. A, it was a great device as a tour guide because it was so clever. Fundamentally, as I'll blow my toot my own horn with that. But it was actually a shitty tool because the people have to stand still, and then your feet hurt, and you get bored, and you get fidgety, and you stop listening. You need to walk and talk. You need to talk for like two minutes and then walk. It doesn't matter how significant what you're looking at is. You have to walk and talk, walk and talk to keep the uh, the, the the punters uh, the punters happy. But I wanted to do the same thing with um i feel like i could do i want um what was i talking about i was talking about the same as you know standing in the middle of rome what was i going to do that with i was going to do that with what was i talking about? Uh, you were talking about the circuit racing stuff that you were going to do the research into yeah i could do the same thing standing in so you could so you could say it from my home in 1930 in my from my home from where i'm sitting at the moment in 1900, what could I go and see? In 1910, what could I go and see? In 1920, in 1930, because it would change. Because something else I was going to talk about, and my, my favourite presenter um, is, is this guy um, at the conference, is this guy Joe Leonard, who, again, has a really interesting background, successful businessman, um, obsessive car guy throughout his life, cl classicist, and then... Um, I had a long conversation with him about Thucydides on a bus ride one time. Um, he studied Thucydides. So um, Duesenberg, class judge at Pebble Beach for Duesenberg, um, did a really interesting piece about Duesenberg racing cars a few years ago, did a really interesting piece this time about people who'd finished second at Indianapolis a lot of times. So kind of like Lloyd Ruby, but even the kind of beardy historians who... Uh, represented at the IMRRC, they weren't, you know, we, they, these are drivers who we've not heard of. And a lot of these guys raced on board tracks, which is with all the splinters, sprint cars on board tracks. Yeah, yes, your face says it all. It was... Yeah, man, Jesus. It was dangerous as a motherfucker. Imagine when the track starts to break up and then you fall out of your car and accidentally impale yourself on a piece of two by four that's come up off the track. I mean, it just, it is yeah, eye, -poppingly, it's not me. eye poppingly dangerous and there's no fucking history of it. Whatsoever.
whatsoever and there are books and i need to dig into like because the books are expensive because they're rare so I, I need to dig into that so i think i might go back and do that kind of hardcore history rather than doing this kind of let's talk about how the story got told type kind of thing so um other people so so there's a there's so there's the older guys like like don and 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 joe and then there's younger guys who um, are racing enthusiasts, but who are academics. So there's one girl, Kate Sullivan, who's at the University of Edinburgh, who does lots of land racing stuff. Like she's the fastest woman in the world in a pickup truck or something like that. Because her parent, because she's been out to Bonneville numerous times. Um, uh, there's a, this Belgian guy, Tim Robears, who did a really interesting project a few years ago about Formula E and made a lot of us old car guys sitting in the room really look at Formula E in a different way. And and you know what? It was it, it I realized that Formula E is on its way to being when you me, me, you and Dens used to sit around in, in Wilds Lane and I used to watch you be all comers on on wipeout on the playstation and we used to say formula one needs to be this it needs to be this floating it needs to be really fast it needs to be neon lights it needs to be upside down it needs to be you can shoot the other guy it needs to be you can drive over power-ups why isn't it that um the managing ethos around formula e at the time that tim did this presentation um, seemed to be like that, and and that was was interesting and, and and cool to me. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, so so the conference brings together, you know, one guy Francis Clax, African American dude who used to race motorcycles. Um, really interesting guy. He was didn't make it this time. I'm not even fingers crossed. He's still he's still with us because he was a bit frail the last time I I spoke to him, but. Um, yeah, um, one guy, um, an academic at the University of Michigan, Mark Howell, um, who worked for Todd Bedeen's NASCAR team. Um, so, you know, he did a piece about his presentation was about rock stars and uh, was was about music and racing cars and how there's a lot of crossover to it. And he talked about Vince Neil racing in the Indy Lights series. And apparently he was quite good. I mean, who knew, cool. right? So, uh, yeah, so it's like, and, and had these fabulous pictures of like Vince with the Indy cars, but with the long hair and the pouts. It was, like, it was truly where heavy metal meets. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but of course, he's a bit light on, he was like, you know, I'm trying to make a list of all the references between racing and car uh, between racing and you know you know every song has a reference to racing or cars in it and i'm like and and uh i sat there thinking I'm, i was able to make a list of half a dozen heavy metal songs straight away you know if especially if you expand it to because to me right i think the main similarity between racing and rock and roll is that most of the time Everyone thinks being a rock star is about being on stage, like, good evening, Long Beach, you know? And everyone thinks motor racing is about being at the track. You know, gentlemen, start your engines and you're racing. And No, it's not. Mostly it's about in the truck, on the road. Both things are mostly about in the truck, on the road. It's mostly, you know, we are the road crew 
it's hotel rooms and motorways you know that's that's really um that's really what it is i i think yeah. so uh, so i think that a lot of that has in com- they have a lot of that in in common yeah yeah so um so let me uh, uh there is a talk track there's not an agenda today but there is a little talk track that i yeah, so uh, so there is this sense, right, that there's two camps at the IMRC. RRC, and we try and bridge that camp a little bit, and and there's, uh, um, but but I guess the main thing is, Simon, was that they streamed it. So if you go to the IMRC website, um, there should be a recording of it. Uh, the conference was free. Um, they'll keep the recording up. You know, this is all about publicising motorsport, and and you know, as Don's been very ill this 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 last year. Um, you know, there is a, a, a sense amongst um, us as younger guys that um, this is the only event where you can talk about. Um, this is the only event where an analysis of why Jackie Stewart won the 1968 German Grand Prix and just how effective is. So it's a well-known story that he cut his own tire chunks out, right? What this conference is all about is digging into that. Well, what shapes did he cut? Well, did it make that bigger difference? Well, he had this legendary victory. Well, let's read the motorsport review. Let's look at the lap charts. Let's find as much contemporary film as we can to see how, you know, let's see if we can talk to him about what he remembers. About it, it, it's it's taking the surface story, which is enough for the folk historians, and it's digging into that in a way which is like a actual hardcore historian, but where the actual hardcore historians in academics, in academic institutions, are mostly just eye-rolling because they don't give a shit about car racing. Um, so yeah, so so that's what uh, so that's uh, the public that's... does though, or at least a large chunk of it. Well, exactly right. So that's why publicising this and and trying to bring some of the sheen and support of Goodwood to to this environment. And you know, you've got a bit, guys like Joe Leonard. They see that he goes to Pebble Beach every year. He shows cars across the east coast you know this is some uh, you know it's not like he doesn't see the juxtaposition between um yeah between the the between the two events between the kinds of 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 events it's just uh um yeah i i uh um yeah so it's uh, that's what the event's all about so it's in the new york uh, watkins glens in the finger lakes region of new york which candidly is a total asshole to get to because if you fly there you have to do a puddle jumper afterwards and then to get out you have to do the puddle jumper usually at an inconvenient time of day so you're always worried you're going to miss the connecting flight back to california um so the other option is is you know you you maybe you just do one flight and you drive from there but you then you're talking like a six hour drive for six hour drive from like jfk or philadelphia or somewhere like that you still got a pretty long drive to to get there um and then you have to have the car throughout the conference when the time you're at the conference you don't really need a car so um that and similar you know so anyway so i did the only sensible thing you could possibly do plus i hate fucking flying let's be candid about it hate airports um hate security 
I'm fine when I'm on the plane, but all of that bullshit between the time that you walk away from the rental car and are sat down on the plane and the plane's actually taking off, all of that can just go straight to hell and never come back to such yeah. an extent that plus turbulence, plus throw in the fact that I fucking hate turbulence as well, scares the producers out of Ah, you know, every time you come over the Sierra Nevadas, it would seem. Mm, um, and, and I had bad weather into Philadelphia, which is why I was like, you know, I was anyway, um, I drove back 3000 miles mm. across the country. Um, I approve. Uh, yeah. So you have done a bunch of driving holidays here. And as I was driving, yeah. I was thinking like you've done way more. And we should preface this, shouldn't we? And this is, I've even got this here. We should preface this by saying that, that at a young, impressionable age, you and I drove a Lincoln Town Car, a 79 Lincoln Town Car, which American car guys will tell you is the last, last year of the really big cars, 400 cubic inch uh, Windsor V8, no horsepower, plenty of torque, sea foam, half length velour roof, that looked like it had been attacked by wild animals with all the foam coming out of it. Big eagles or something, yeah. Sea foam velour interior. Do you remember Eight that? Eight-way directional seat control, baby. That oh. fucking worked. Oh, and it, it worked, awful. didn't it? So, you know... What... You could sleep in on the bench seat, front and back, with your neither your head or feet touching the doors. Yeah, yeah. It was legit. So we would just drive and then pull off the highway, park up somewhere... And, you know, wake up in the morning and sometimes it'd be an office car park. Sometimes it'd be a hotel. Yeah. Sometimes it'd be, yeah. It'd be the guitar, famous guitar-shaped pool of Nashville hotels. Yeah. we just have a little swim in. Yeah. Yeah. Me and my boxers, because I couldn't find any, bo- any shorts. shorts <laughs> can I? Yeah. Only realising as I came out that that was going to delineate my scrotal area. Right. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did we go? We never went to Grand Ole Opry, did we? We went to Nashville, no. but we didn't go to Grand Ole We went Ole to Opry. a bar in Nashville where they were playing in the evening, and it was pretty cool. We had a few beers and like tipped the geezer that was playing, sitting on a stool inside the door with the, with the uh, the cowboy hat and the uh, and the guitar, the guitar. Sorry, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a that was a good do evening. You, do you remember one of the bars we were in? There were loads of photographs of country singers, and you were like, "I see. It's important to be hot if you're a female country singer." And I was like, True. yeah, it, that had never occurred to me before. In my naivety, I thought it was all about the quality of the singing voice. <laughs> I think that it is that as well. It's just that there's a large enough pool of people that want to be country stars. That, and as you are absolutely exceptional, yeah, they're going to pick the hot one. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't drive through Nashville this time. Although I did no. drive through Indianapolis, which we drove through b- before, but I, I didn't stop. So I did... Um, from Watkins Glen in upstate New York to beyond St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri, in on day one. Then I did basically well from like from nearly near you know a hundred miles west of St. Louis on Route sixty six, like the route of Route sixty six. Then because Route sixty six comes from Chicago to Indianapolis. Um. There's really interesting things about Route 66, right? It's, it's called the Main Street of America because it connected the towns together like an old-fashioned English A-road. And just like now, if you drive the A-roads when there's a motorway parallel, like you drive the A4 when mm-hmm. the motorway, you know, Marlborough 
is still much as it was a hundred or two hundred years ago. Um, yep. So when you drive through these community, well, well, so Route sixty six is that too, and if you were were thinking you might find some decay, like it's there straight away. It's there all like along the side of the old road. There is a scene of where once there was, you know, roadside businesses. You take the trade away, it dies. I picked up a can of Coke. I stopped in this town, San John, New Mexico, because John, obviously, right? And uh, it's one of these where you remember that scene in The Big Lebowski where... um, uh, the the PIs after Lebowski's crashed the car and uh, the, the the PI um, the, that the PI is follow is, uh, is is look I'll get the words out of my mouth in a minute the PI is following him in the blue Volkswagen and says to him you know yeah. fellow Seamus you know looking for Bunny um, you know the family have sent this picture of her farm in Kansas they think they if they think it might make her homesick. And it's a picture of this fucking barren fucking dust bowl with this shitty little shack on it. And you're thinking like, yeah, there is no way in hell she is ever, ever going back to to, to that. Um, It's that kind of, it was that kind of, so there's nowhere for me to take a piss. But there's this building, I'm like, whatever. In California, there'd be like homeless squatters living in the building. But so you wouldn't want to like go in for fear you were like peeing in their bed. But like, I was like, there's probably no way. So anyway, I went in there, took a pee. And next to where I'm taking a pee, there's like a stove. And I'm like, oh, wow. There's still like the stove that was in here when somebody lived in this place. And then I noticed next to it, there's two old Coke cans. And when I say old Coke cans, I mean that they are from the era where when you, re- when you did the ring pull, you removed the ring pull. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. They changed those when we were at Devonport High School for Boys in the late 1980s. Because I remember David Bickle being upset that you couldn't separate the things. And you remember he would always, Bickle, ever afterwards, would always fiddle with the lid until it broke off out of petulance that they weren't going to leave the lid attached, that he wanted a separate ring pull. Do you remember that? So that must have been what? Well, late you remember 80s? he used to better put the ring pull bit into the so the, the you put the uh, the the sort of uh, tab that came out. If you had the the ring pull with the two little slits in it, you could stick it in and then bend it back and use it as a spring and fire the ring pull across the classroom. Yeah, yeah, I do remember Bickle. I mean, doing that, that. that's you know they're destroying a hobby. Yeah, they're destroying a way. Well, of life. well, so that was a way of life has been destroyed. Well, fucking, this is what I saw on Route sixty six, right? A way of life destroyed. A can of soda, a Coke can that had been drunk, discarded, and left there for what thirty years, thirty five years. You know, like so that was was interesting. So a lot of you know, so finding the cool abandoned garages with cars cool cars that was not to the extent that i conditioned myself to i was like i'm not going to stop if i stop at any of these i'm just not going to because i i set myself to do it in four days so it meant that i had to do at least 750 miles a day and then when i started out i was like i i didn't want to get caught speeding um so i just set the speed out well, well then i realized i could drive further without getting tired you know like a lot further because the speeds were lower. 
because everything was just mm. moving more slowly. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so St. Louis the first day, the second day, um, Amarillo, Texas, just by Cadillac Ranch, you know, where the so I stopped basically because, um, I was good because this is the thing, right? You're my gut is that when the sun goes down, you're like, right, fucking cannonball now. Because, and whereas, and you know, in, in the old days when I used to go up and down to LA a lot, that'd be the time to get the radar detector on. And that was the time where you could really make some speed because the radar detector would, would work you know, fast up the hill and then roll off over the top of the hill. And then on the way, if, if the radar doesn't detect right over the top of the hill, you can just come back in the throttle and do, be doing whatever speed you, you, you want to be, you know, you want to be, you want to be doing there. Um, but, uh, um, I didn't bring a radar detector. I didn't want to drive like that this time. And I, I realized on the first day when I'd done the whole of the Midwest, like all the way across, like New York, Philadelphia, Ohio, you know, and then right the way into Missouri, which is right the way across the Midwest, right? Missouri was the Western bit of America, you know, the edge of the wild West, wasn't it? And I did that in a single, in a single day. So with that thought, I was like, I want to see how the country, how the country evolves in terms of landscapes, I don't want to. Plus, when you've been driving since eight o'clock, since seven, eight o'clock in the morning, by the time it gets dark, you're fucking mm. knackered anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Amarillo, Texas. So I did Cadillac Ranch, and the weather was like we we grew up in Plymouth, and Plymouth has a special brand of rain, doesn't it? Where it's not quite raining, it's just damp. So you can mm. put an umbrella out, and it's not going to help you at all. You're still going to be wet and cold and the cold gets into your bones far more than the temperature would suggest like you americans would say what what's the temperature you would say oh mid 50s and they'd say well it's fine and then you leave them out in it for a little bit like we had we get a bit of this wet weather like that here dana watched the soccer match of Hollings. cold got into our bones so uncomfortable and miserable like with well it was like that when i was at cadillac ranch it was like that kind of cotton wool fog and just a word on cadillac ranch as you're driving west it's south of the highway it's actually quite a long way away it's not like stonehenge stonehenge is way closer way closer to the road than or actually that road's closed did you know that have you been past stonehenge recently they've what closed the that closed they've moved the road it's moved um, really damn yeah excellent about time yeah um or they moved the road they moved is the one that goes right past it Right, the one that the, that that road. So not the oh, three hundred three. The little one is the one that they've uh, that oh, they've okay. closed and they've made the whole thing part. Of, so down at the if if you go past, if, if you remember you used to be driving. If you were driving west, you used to come off the three hundred three and on that little on that little road, and then the car park would just be up on the right. They've now mm-hmm. moved all of that stuff further away, and you go to a visitor center, and then you ride a bus down. Um, I actually think it's a better experience, but I wasn't. Yeah, I was, still got- dual character well you know a major a road yeah but they're going to move that that's that's the the they're going to that's that's going to be moved i think so uh, yeah yeah so um so amarillo texas to um uh was it seligman yeah it was seligman arizona which is the town which is closest to radiator springs in the cars movie um and it is I mean, it is California. And by that time, right, at almost every intersection, there's historic Route 66. 
And if you get off, you can actually drive on what was Route 66. Uh, and it'll run parallel to the main freeway. Um, and sometimes the surface won't be quite good and the speed limit will be 55 miles an hour. But you really get a sense of what it was really what it was really like. So um, I actually felt like the best bits of Route 66 were, were out west. I actually felt like the best vistas, like New Mexico, the high desert, awesome. But I actually felt like the best vistas were... Um, old uh, California there coming into to Southern California. And then I came off at 58 um, and came past Bakersfield and then up I-5 and home to uh, home here to, to the, uh, to the San Francisco, to, to the Bay area. Um, I kind of want an 80 wheeler again, you know, I'll kind of, um, they are really, really cool. Um, because I didn't really talk to anybody and I didn't listen to the radio or anything like that. I just had my YouTube playlist on mix. So a lot of like EDM and a lot of heavy metal and absolutely nothing else. I was just totally like checked out from the And driving slower, you run at the same speed as, as the trucks a lot of the time. Although what you'll remember from, um, you know, years ago of, uh, of, of what driving in the Lincoln was on the downhills they don't mess around. They'll do whatever the speed the truck will run up to. They won't fight the brake, fight it on the brakes. If it wants to run down that hill at 80 or 85, they will, will let it do that. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, I'm not, I've not been passed by an 18 wheeler like that for, uh, for, for some considerable time. Um, you did a couple of vacations here. Um, didn't you, where did you, where did you drive? Five years. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just picked up rental Mustangs from various places. Um, so the V8s, obviously, at least I, I sometimes do V8 straight away if it was an option or just upgrade at the airport. Um, but yeah, now we flew into uh, Seattle or a couple of times into once into Vegas, a couple of times into San Francisco, and then picked up um, the cars and then did various routes or routes, if we it feels right to say that, given we're talking about America. Um and then, yeah, I mean, we drove from San Francisco to Las Vegas through Death Valley. Uh, I've been through um, Yosemite. I've been through um, Yellowstone. Um, we did cr- Craters of the Moon National Park. I did northern Idaho up to and uh, through Montana up to the up to the uh, the border, um, going to the Sun Road and so forth. I've been in that national park up there. I mean, look, it's an absolutely fabulous places up there. Um, regularly get the side eye from the uh, gentleman as i dropped the uh, the rental car back and he goes you've had this for three weeks and you've done five and a half thousand miles how have you done that like, well there's a lot to see you know um, but uh yeah i mean look it's it's epic and you know if you spend a bit of time out there you can find some really nice roads you really can i mean you know i'm just thinking off the top of my butt but boise boise which is a wonderful name uh, idaho if you if you head northeast out of there up to idaho city once you get past there on the 21 damn that is a, a beautiful piece of road and it's twisty as all hell um well surfaced goes all the way up into the mountains yeah. and and and, and, I, and I, should point, I, should point, I should point out there that you uh it wasn't like we prepared for this call or anything like that you just remembered that off the cup because you enjoy driving that road so much oh well, i've been up there twice deliberately because it was just so great we took a little detour on the way back from um uh 
the Grand Tetons National Park, which I love the fact that it is basically the Big Tits National Park. That's, the name, that's what it, that means. Um, because there's two mountains that look like a pair of bazoomers. <laughs> WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. It's fair enough, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, there, um, there's that um, joke, isn't there, that I always uh, forget how to tell properly, but the, the punchline is it's like Native Americans talking to each other, and uh, the punchline is, anyway, why do you ask two dogs fucking? Okay, <laughs> that's an odd name, Dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's some there's some special stuff up there. Um, and if you get up early, or if you or more to the point with a lot of those national parks, you know, don't get up early. You know, have a lie in. You want a holiday with the missus? You know, chill in, have a big breakfast, go and do a bit of driving to get you where you get to. Then have a nice late lunch and linger over it. Um, go and chill out somewhere, look at a bit of scenery, and then head on up to say, you know, the national park about an hour before sunset perfect everyone's coming the other way so a you've got the road up there when everyone's around pretty much to yourself going one way so you can enjoy the road up there then you get up to the to the car park that's almost empty you get lovely sunset light on everything so all your photos look golden uh, and then when you leave you're leaving at sort of just after the sun goes down time to get back to the hotel and have a nice bottle of wine and some food with the uh, with your good lady and you can thrash the rental car on the way back down the mountain as well so yeah Lots to be said for that. Mm. And if there's roadworks, that's the other trick I would advise. Uh, if there's roadworks uh, on your chosen route, then, uh, you know, get through the roadworks. If you're at the back of the EQ, get through the roadworks on the contraflow. Stop, you know, sit down, do, do something constructive for 10, 15 minutes. And then you know that whole road ahead of you has got no one on it. So you can have, you know, stretch the vehicle's legs somewhat um and if you're first through on the contraflow because you probably will be at the next one because everyone else would have gone through ahead of you then you ne definitely know you've got the entire time of the contraflow was coming the other way and no one in front of you as well yeah i was and if you uh... have to wait if it's long enough sometimes you'll catch up and i'm not saying this has happened to me or anything but you'll catch up a north wind branded caravan at least three or four times so when you're editing your own private gopro footage of it you, you come hooning up to the back of said caravan on multiple occasions and then just find a little lay-by somewhere picturesque with a nice view of the river and chill out for a bit. Have a little, uh, you know, um, relaxed time and then head on again. Cracking entertainment. Um, I guess the other thought that, that I had is about um, Route 66 is... Um, that what they badge as historic Route 66 is the road as it was in 1926 when it was like designated as Route 66. But that sort of hides the fact that it was in continual evolution. So it wasn't like it suddenly bypassed the towns and, you know, people were thrown out of work. It, it, it continually evolved and, and changed and, and developed basically as cities grew up it then needed to bypass those cities because it was slow driving through the middle of them um so it, it it was a continual shifting changing um kind of a thing and i actually you know you and i have have hiked that road that prehistoric road um west of london the ridgeway 
actually reminded me more of that that it was this sense of sort of of continual um evolution rather than being one kind of of um you know fixed thing that this was route 66 kind of thing it wasn't like that it was a it was a continually evolving uh evolving thing um who's your favorite youtube at the moment um i quite like uh well obviously i like a bit of todd's triple todd um who was introducing himself as hi it's todd from todd's workshop and todd cutler here as if you didn't get that it was todd the first time um i understand why he does it but it still makes me smile every time doing his roman catapulta re revisited and he's got himself a, a ballista that he, he experiments with and he's good buddies with dr toby kaplan from the wallace collection in london so he makes replicas of you know uh, daggers and then test them out against various types of leather and chain mail to see how brutally dead you would be if someone knifed you with them and whether or not he does any damage to the weapons um and, and he usually gets the gentleman from uh, Scholar Gladiatoria, which is another quite good YouTube channel, if you like your arms and armor, to help him demo them. And uh, he's into that sort of hi historical reenactment with sort of um, foam latex weapons stuff, which is pretty brutal, to be honest. Um, but uh, where they do a bit of arms and armor reenactment fighting. So I quite like that. And then I also like, I was watching a bit of a uh, Daffid Phillips, who's a Welsh photographer and videographer who spends a lot of time going to air shows like Axalp in Switzerland uh, and hanging around on the Mac Loop in North Wales and Snowdonia, where all the sort of fighter jets from various allied nations, uh, NATO nations, go to train at flying sort of sub-mountain level and sort of 500 feet and so forth. And he gets he climbs up the mountain daily, has his little CB radio to listen into the to the pilots' uh, chatter, so because you don't they don't announce the flight schedule, obviously. Um, and then, you know, gets amazing, like, 4K footage of F-35s coming past at just about subsonic speeds below him. He's standing above them on the mountain looking down. Uh, and the bits where, the bits I love every time is where they start to pull at a vertical turn, so they'll flip over like they do in Top Gun and, like, pull vertical. And you get that sort of um, sort of mist and halo of vapour over the top as it sort of rips the, air, the moisture out of the air as they pull the air, uh, pull upwards. And some of the shots of that with the sunlight on it, and it's all sort of rainbow trails through that. It's just mwah, beautiful. So that's the, yeah, we're looking at that moment. Mm, mm. I was aware of that alley in, in Wales and had seen some of the photos. So, uh, yeah, um, I, 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 uh, I've been enjoying um, Salvage Rebuilds UK, which is these these two guys in Kent who, who rebuild cars. Um, and uh, one of them's kind of shot, the one that's skillful guy, is kind of shy and doesn't like to talk very much and and the guy that talks to the camera all the time it's like a dose of england without being in england so so a something that made me fall about laughing the other day was was uh the rob talks about is talking about damage to the part of the car that's below the door between the wheels which i don't know how you would pronounce it but he pronounces it seal the seal, damage to the seal. Well, and and he has these really flat, like Kent, like, like and it, so, um, it, it so he, the the accent makes me laugh. The skill of of workmanship that they'll take, like an Audi A3 that's been spammed at the front, and they'll have it rebuilt in a couple of days, 
and you can and and it's not just the sourcing and fitting of the parts it's not just the repairing the engine it's hardcore body repair as as well so there's the element that i always like from those that kind of youtube where you uh, were where you learn it but no the the seal as as uh, makes me laugh the accent makes me laugh and and what really made me laugh is this one video where after he says seal the other one goes oh like, arr, arr, <laughs> like, 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 and, and when I pointed that like out, buggers on Pier Thirty Nine or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. like, like the seals on on Pier Thirty Nine and the arr, arr of the uh, and yeah, so that made me laugh because of of our um, silly joke about about the seals. But but yeah, the, the so I'm enjoying I've enjoyed Salvage Rebels UK because um, of that. Uh, favorite car or bike at the moment? I don't know. Um, what's yours? Uh, give me another thirty seconds to think about that. Oh, um, I hadn't. I told you to think about this before you came oh, on you? the call. Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> um, but I, I, of course, I told you to do it, and then hadn't done it myself. But that's what this should be, right? This this favorite car at the moment should be a totally spontaneous thing. And I've said car and bike to to combine it together. I've got to be honest with you. I I did this open garage thing for some of my neighbors where, you know, there's a number of us on the street that are into cars and bikes in different kinds of ways. So we uh, do a, a little get together where we just drink beer and, and talk about cars um, or bikes or whatever takes our fancy. Um, and I hadn't hosted. And I thought, well, instead of just hosting, I'll get a couple of cars out of the garage. I'll move the bikes around. I'll make it so that you can actually see the bikes. And uh, yeah, and I didn't plan to like, call it an open garage but that's what it sort of turned out to be and it felt like an open garage to me because i was like espousing ab about my uh my my stuff um one of my bikes a uh, the 90 gsxr 1100 which is black and gray and has a bunch of race bits on it for yoshimura race pipe for um mikuni's um it really uh i i'd not looked at it in you know I'd, i don't know if it'd been in a corner um i'd not looked at it in comparison to i have the same bike in the same colors with a standard exhaust on it and a totally standard setup and i guess i hadn't i because i've been fiddling around with and trying to get the standard bike to work i hadn't looked at the racier one for a long time and the racier one is sexy as a bag of cats and i fucking love sports bikes and i guess i learned just recently that that bike um the values have always hurt them because in the tt in 1989 two riders were killed riding them steve henshaw and uh, phil mccallan both in one, in one fucking race so no wonder they're they're not that uh, they're, they're not that loved and there's this feeling of more engine than the rear chassis or 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 uh, or brake, but you know, I never. I'm not gonna uh, I quite like the MV Brutali. Oh, you do exhaust a new one. Particular. That's new, is it? Yeah. Well, I don't know whether it's new or not, but like the new sexy exhaust system on it. I mean, oh, it's, oh I always like those. I always um, like them. Yeah, yeah. It's just Brutales. yeah, yeah. It's very nice. Um, although from an event point of view, I was watching an episode of Harry's Garage the other day. Uh, bless him and. Uh, he was talking about having some custom bike build for this Sand Raiders thing, which I'd never heard of, which I think I sent you the link to. I don't know if you had a chance to have a look at it. 
but it's essentially gentlemen's Dakar light, if you like. So you go to Mexico and they ship you, you need to provide a bike or you can rent a bike off them. And it's a week's worth of, I think you do about like two and a half thousand kilometers or something in a week or something like that. So it's not a, you know, you, you do the miles through Morocco and they've set it up to do all these different stages. You stay every night in nice hotels. Come on, we're not savages. Um, but they'll ship the bike down for you to, from wherever it's coming from and you have to have the right insurance and so forth. But you can live your Dakar fantasy and it's like two and a half thousand euros. Yeah. I've I'm got a new sure. model to train I'm not, for. I'm not sure how much of a Dakar fantasy I I have. Um, I, I also like riding around in the desert. Well, like I also that sort of thing. I also You're feel awesome. like, uh, yeah, I mean, but but oh, but it's I like because it, they they've chosen picturesque routes because it's not the Dakar, you know. So they it's like through the mountains and through all this sort of stuff. So they've chosen what looks to be a really gorgeous route, at least from looking at the from the from the information. Harry did it last year and said he really he thought it was awesome. I didn't see any videos about it, but maybe I just missed them. Well, um, but yeah, Mark, if you ever want to have a, a, a desert riding fantasy, like we should, you should fly here and we should go down and see Mark Newton in Toto Santos and take his. Yeah, but I don't want to get shot. I want to go and have the. Uh, Toto <laughs> Santos is, is not, that's not, that's, well, I mean, that's, that, it's a touristy place. Look it up. Look it up. It's t- it's touristy spot, Toto Santos. It'd be. The the shooty bit is up by the border. Well, either way, I quite like the idea of it. But look, I mean, reality is, I'm gonna have to. I'm I've been eyeing up Honda um, CRX two fifty rallies. Um, I think things like that. I'm thinking yeah. that'll do me. Well, the other thing, the other thing you you should do is um, since. Um, Certainly since I, when I picked up riding again, um, I was amazed at how the kit has changed. So basically oh, now yeah, yeah. you can get like Kevlar jeans and a Kevlar check shirt that does better protection than um, the, your leathers. So the whole business of, oh, I'm too fat to fit into my leathers now. I need to slim down. Yeah, it, I'm going to need to buy in stuff anyway. Yeah, but yeah. Um, especially if I'm living off road, the leather's just. Not it's good also anyway. it's also like a whole adventure finding the equipment because it's actually quite hard to step away from. So what I bought, I bought this um, armored vest thing, and it's got foam in the elbow, and it's quite hard to step away from what I used to have with that elbow and Styles thing, like on a hard armored elbow. It's hard to. It, it's weird to step away from hard plastic. And know that this soft foam is going to provide more protection because this soft foams, this like clever fucking material that goes ultra hard when you hit it. So it's like soft and flexible until it's hit. And then when it's hit, it's super, it's, it's super hard. Like those non-Newtonian fluids and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, so between that and so if you wear that armor and then you wear like a Kevlar shirt, like a Czech Kevlar shirt, that like could pass as a normal, like not set, not classy, but you know, like a, 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 you know, you could wear it in the pub and not look like you're wearing a motorcycle kind of thing. Those things have more slide than leather. It's, it's absolutely brain out. It, it's you, you need to uh, adjust your like perception of, of what's possible with it. Um, Cause I was thinking about it cause I kind of rushed the learning. And what well, the important thing for me was was getting jeans that were 
See, if, if I sit on a sport, if I sit on a jigsaw in the trousers that I'm wearing at the moment, wearing the tennis shoes I'm wearing at the moment, I fit fine. If I do the same thing wearing boots and my leathers, I can't get my foot onto the peg easily. Well, that's bloody dangerous. So one of my main goal was to get things that were proper, get proper armor, but where I could actually get my leg up. So I ended up getting a size of climb. K-L-I-M is the best gene maker based upon the research that I did 18 months ago. Um, I I got a pair of them, but if I don't put the belt on, they fall down. They're like, they're, they're, I mean, they, 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 look, they look like they're for a bloke, you know, three inches. They are for a bloke three inches taller than me and, you know, and a lot fatter. But this way, this way, I get enough play in the knee that I can, you know, and they're wide enough so they go over the top of my boot. So I wear my old boot and the jean goes over it. Anyway, it, it, it's uh, the whole like getting the right kit is uh, is, is a total uh, is a total fucking sport. Um, what's the most scared? I thought of this the other day. What's the most scared you've ever been in a car or on a bike? I'll go first if you're thinking. Okay. Um, I thought of this question and then I didn't have an answer. And I was thinking, well, you've got to have an answer. It's such a good question. You've got to have an answer about it. And I was thinking, well, what is the most frightening times? And the most frightening times is the moment where you know you're going to crash, where you're out of control and you know you're going to crash. So if I think about the time that took, that that moment lasted the longest, um, the occasion, because on a sports bike, the window between usually don't have time to be scared, right? Usually just you're on it and then you're hurt, right? You, you, there's not the, the, there's not the, so I was pretty scared um, when I rode that Aprilia around Italy and I was on a bridge or I was riding on a freeway and it was a downhill and we were going onto a bridge and the join to the bridge had like this metal section about a foot wide and it was slick with water. And I just knew the front wheel was going to slide. And there's nothing to do but watch the front wheel slide and hope that I didn't fall off and eat pavement at highway speeds. And I just was over it and that was it. So that was scary, but, you know, but I actually think the most scared was probably in that white Ford Sierra two-litre gear that you and I own jointly um, on the way home from the office or the gym one day where the back snapped on me and I caught it but didn't correct fast enough. And the act of catching it meant that I just speared off the road and into a ditch at about 80 or 85 miles an hour. And I remember it going and me catching it and feeling like a hero for catching it. And then immediately it wanting to spear off the road and me seeing the tree in the ditch coming and just thinking, fucking hell, like this could be the very end. And you lost your nice green Jaguar bag out of the back because some little bastard came along and pilfered, pilfered it in overnight before we could go back and empty out the car in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were a trooper that that day. Thank you uh, uh, again for that because uh, when when the car stopped moving, I was like, oh, let's fucking get out of here. And the right hand side of it was against the ditch, and and because it went in, it went across the ditch, hit a fucking tree, bounced back, went along the ditch backwards. Um, so the driver, so I tried to get out of the driver door and it wouldn't open and the passenger doors were against the ditch. So I opened the sunroof to get out and walk to a pub to call you. 
And I remember in the pub, they looked at me as if I was like, you know, if, if I was fucking E.T., they looked at me the same way as I had like the pool ball stopped moving when I when I walked in the pub. Yeah, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, the loss of the nice green Jaguar bag still mourned to this, uh, mm. uh, to, to, to this um, very day. So to respond, I guess, I don't know. I mean, obviously I've had a few accidents. Everyone does if you've been done, done as many hundreds of thousands of miles as, as, as we have. Um, I guess I was thinking about it earlier on when, uh, when you mentioned this, but um, the... Um, uh, I came when I used to. I used to drive to and from my work at Redstone in Bramley, the village near when I was living in Risley near Reading. And there was a back roads route that you could on a route. We're back in England now. There was a back roads route um, that you could go from my house to the office, and you got an hour for lunch. But it was about a fifteen minute drive. But I would still go home for lunch because I knew that road really well, and you could get. I could do that route in about seven or eight minutes. So therefore, you could have about forty-five minutes at home, having a nice bit of lunch, watch a bit of telly or whatever, and then blast back to the office. And I was doing my—I think it was in in various cars, but I think at the time I was in that um, angular-shaped sort of uh, Focus two-liter gear. Um, and I came smoothly carving my nice apex lines around the corner, and there was a guy in a box van reversing round the corner <laughs> blind corner uh, reversing round the corner towards me and i was like uh oh um and it was one of those runs where they're like okay either i'm just gonna have an the mother and father of all rear-ending into this van and i'm gonna lose that so i just overtook him it was like well you know and uh, you know it's like roll the dice here buddy make a saving throw because if there's something coming the other way it's gonna be worse yeah than in the van yeah but if it isn't yeah and there wasn't yeah. Um, I just overtook him at like galactic speed <laughs> and, uh, yeah. was, like, off down the other end of the road yeah. and around the next bend before I could even react yeah. to put the horn on. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a pretty good one. And I'd never heard that one yeah, before. Kind of intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my other question was going to be about books and, and of course you're not reading at the moment. So I'll talk about my books and, and, and then, uh, I've been all your books at the moment, but yeah. Yeah, um, I so I I uh, the book I was going to talk about was old Miles Collier's um, the archaeological automobile, and and how this is really just a, a handbook for looking after um, collector cars and how to think about collector cars, how to think about um, the automobile as a historical thing. If you care about cars, if you have any interest in cars, the book is worth picking up. Um, it's $150. I mean, it's one review, the Society of Automotive Historians review, Ruben Verdi's skilled reviewer. Um, his comment was that really this it would be great if this was in paperback form. And I think this is interesting because this book was something that I was originally going to write with Michael Shanks. And then because Michael was busy um, and it wasn't going to be the $15, $20 in the high street bookshop kind of publication. Michael, it wasn't the right thing for him to be involved in doing with his time and energy. It didn't suit his, um, what he needed to do at, at, at the time. So one way or another, it, it never got written. Miles wrote it himself. Um, but of course, what comes out is very different from what would have been, you know, 
um, you know, what it would have been like if he and I had written, if two Englishmen, uh, you know, if two uh, lower middle class Englishmen had written it, it would be very different from if, you know, one of the wealthiest and, and leading car collectors in the world has, has, has written it. Now, for all that, the the book has Miles's di- just incredibly dexterous feel for, for storytelling and, and for cars in, in general, it's really exquisite. And, and to reduce it to paperback and 15 bucks in the airport almost doesn't do it justice because he approaches the cars like high art and, and his book looks like high art. And the stuff that he's written um, comes across as the, the musings of, of somebody who, who regards the stuff as high art rather than as you know, paperback and, and, and disposable. That's not to say, so the long and short is there's still room for somebody like myself to take those ideas and that aesthetic and discuss it in a way which is accessible for people who have XR3s and, and Camaros. Um, so that's my... Uh, right. So, the, so the, the, the recent audio book I'm listening to um, uh, is I'm on book two of Sherlock Holmes' uh, and the Cthulhu case books. So this is an this is a book books a series of books written by James Lovegrove because of course Holmes is old enough now that it's public property. Um, that so you can write with those characters because you know Mr. Mr. Conan Doyle. Uh, so uh, so so A himself is long dead and it's passed into public domain. Copyright has expired. Um, so he's written Cthulhuized versions of the books where yes Holmes is still the same sort of deductive genius. But actually, he was waging a long campaign against the elder gods who were behind a lot of the evil that was going on. And there's like Cthulhu style monsters and summonings and evil stuff going on in the deeps beneath London. And it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and, and actually, Mark, that's given us a, a really nice segue for, for, for me to, to talk about what I was going to say is that, you know, in I asked you for favorite books, um, one of these episodes a while ago and you were like well i've been writing and and i was going to say we should say you know you you're you've been writing these uh, uh, satirical dungeons and dragons novels that sort of bring our dungeons and dragons campaign uh, alive um halvar and clarence chronicles of halvar and clarence there's a website um well the website's not quite up again yet well <laughs> it's going to be of course not again, but, but you know who's listening to this and you know, by the time you build it, it's probably going to be up. How many people who yeah. are listening to it are actually going to go to the website anyway? But of course, all of this them. also, all, every one of them. Uh, no, the other, but this also ties to, to the, the YouTube channel that we talk about all the time, 44T, the motorcycling YouTube channel, and Mike Booth, because com sponsored Mike Booth um, on his fateful visit to, to the TT recently. So this is why we've been invested in uh, in Mike Booth. And and Mark, you've been invested in uh, in, in writing these uh, these these novels. So I'm yeah, gonna best wishes. so I'm gonna of course I'm sorry. I said of course best wishes to Boothy still I saw a video of his update from him the other way the guy's approaching it in exactly the way you would hope he would like an absolute hero and I'm sure he'll show yeah. us all up as to what can be done? Yeah, um, I, I watched yeah, the beginning story. of one video, and he was looking very pale, and he was saying, "You know, some days are just shit." 
and I'm thinking, I think that's inevitable. Jeez, yeah. dude, you know. And there was there was one where he described the wound. Did you see that one? And the description yeah. that he'd used to do. I, I'm not going to spoil Forty Four Teeth storytelling because it is no, um, my word it is compelling. Yeah. So look on the theme of of motorcycles. Um, mm. I and and this is where I'm going to wrap. I'm going to wrap up with a little bit of trumpet blowing and and a good new and and a good news story, which is that through some um, politicking, um, the motorcycle course at San Francisco City College was due to be taken off um, off the, the the roster. So at the moment, there's no motor. You know, if you wanted to study motorcycles at San Francisco City College for the first time in 20 years, you couldn't do it this semester. But next semester, it has been reinstated um, in small part due to the flamey letter that I wrote to the trustees of the college, which then got forwarded to the chancellor. And it seemed that, that what happened was that the course appears in the books. And as far as the chancellor and the trustees were concerned, the course was going ahead. But where the rubber met the road for a couple of sort of political reasons that are too complicated to drill into here it wasn't going ahead and by staring up the hornet's nest and being like you know what the fuck the motorcycle course is really good like where is it the students want it there's faculty to teach it what the fuck just by being that it's meant the the course has now been reinstated in a meaningful way um in cool. the in the spring so uh, go me and uh, as i said to dana <laughs> It, it seems that, that maybe that time I spent uh, at City College wasn't, um, you know, doing the admin stuff and the, the meetings at City College wasn't actually wasted time. That, that it has tangible benefits and, and improvements. Um, yeah, I, I guess the, the you know, there's a bigger story with City College, which is that, you know, the motorcycle course is small beans in comparison to teaching English as a second language to Syrian refugees. Um or to you know, yeah, recently got to skill them up. Yeah, got to skill people up. There's no having the American dream if you can't get a foothold on it, dude. Like, how are you going to make America great again if you can't even speak the language? Come on, yeah, got to get behind it. Yeah, get a hat. Yeah. Everyone yeah. needs a hat. Yeah. Not that but hat. no, but no, but no. Great. Truly, it's, it's carry your own culture with you, but you've got to yeah. skill up and integrate into society, haven't you? But, hmm. but, uh, and, That's all right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So apparently there are 300 languages spoken in California at the moment, the same as it was in the 1840s before the gold rush. Shit, bro, I didn't even know there were 300 languages still being spoken. Yeah, in California there were 300 languages. But the Native Americans in California had had 300 languages, apparently. When I did that, when I did that American history course, that was one of the eye-popping things about when you think of the you, when you think of Native Americans, you need to think of it as a hodgepodge of all sorts of different cultures. That's it's a patchwork of cultures because it was small tribes, you know, each of which mm. had their own cultures, and it's absolutely fascinating, fascinating history. I'd like to study the more warlike ones. There were some warlike ones near here. I, of course, am interested in these. Ollie's been studying the uh, Ohlone people that were in this part of... Uh, but they seem, you know, they seem to be pretty Ewoky 
I'm not so interested in the oh, archetypes. <laughs> Garlands of flowers and pacifism. Yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah. But but is that just what we need to bring a few stormtroopers that can rattle them Ewoks? Exactly, up. But, got a bit of fire that, going. but is that just what we take from them, right? That when we look back on how their lives were, you know, we like the idea of it being, you know, a simple pastoral paradise. It probably wasn't like that, was it? It's probably more like more it's probably more like the homeless people are now. <laughs> what, like Ewok on Ewok knife action. Yeah. Yeah. Could be like every Ewok for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, on that super incongruous note, let me bring this Beachawawa. On that rambling and is that copyright? Are we gonna be done for copyright now? On that It was on the Ewoks cartoon, as I recall from when we were kids. They used to be like Beachawawa when anything unusual or ex- or extreme happened. Yeah, like you know, an, an ATST kicked through the back of that little mud hut. Yeah, and then they'd be like, ah, run away, Beachawawa. Yeah, but then get them back with big like logs on swings and stuff later on because you know, yeah. much like Avatar, the locals have got to win. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, look on that um, incongruous and unusual note. Let me thank you for your time. It's all good. And uh, bid uh, our listeners adieu. A listener. <laughs> yeah, me while I'm editing it. Adieu. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>